Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. For those that don't know, One in Five is a Cincinnati-based nonprofit with a mission to promote optimal mental health for Cincinnati youth through stigma reduction and evidence-based mental health education. For our second episode, we dive into adolescent mental health and discuss what mental wellness looks like. First up, we're talking with Dr. Michael Sorter, Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Sorter is a graduate of University of Cincinnati's Medical School and has over 30 years of experience in psychiatry. So Nancy, take it away. Okay, so the first question that we're going to um, ask you is um, just tell us about your current position at Children's Hospital. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a um, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and um, what that is is a physician who specializes in um, issues regarding behavioral and mental health. And, um, and I work mainly with children, but also um, as all child and adolescent psychiatrists are, they're trained to work with adults too. Um, in my current position, um, what I've been doing over uh, many years is trying to build clinical programs for the treatment of children and adolescents and families uh, who have behavioral and mental health problems, uh, really to uh, assist their recovery. One of the tragic things about um, really, um, you know, our mental health problem in the country is really the lack of services. And um, the really across the nation, the access to care is a major problem. And so um, what's been really encouraging is that I think institutions like the one I'm at is, has been really promoting developing those services so that we're able to engage more children, engage more families, um, because it's so important that we catch young people early in these uh, problems, when they have these problems. Uh, so that we can try to really diminish any of the negative secondary effects. And so that's why in my career, I think it's really been very rewarding is that by helping really create programs and to uh, put together, uh, uh, you know, new initiatives about reaching out to children and families, whether it's outpatient care or inpatient or partial hospital, whatever it may be, is you can see that you can intervene and really help people along the way. Okay, that's great. And what is the role that One in Five has played with Children's Hospital in the last 10 years? Well, One in Five has been, I think, a real blessing to um, really that whole effort of working with uh, One in Five has really allowed us to reach really thousands more children um, really on a, every year. Uh, they've done great, um, not only supporting some of our programs regarding kind of enrichment and depression or education around depression, suicide prevention, um, have been a major supporter of all this intervention at schools. But it's not just that and what they've contributed in regards to uh, helping children progress, but really I think the focus on community initiative 
raising awareness, um, decreasing stigma. I think as Nancy would say, start the conversation. Um, the idea that we really kind of decrease or, or take mental health out of the closet, recognize what it is and uh, do our best to enhance it and really treat when, it's, when there's an illness, but also bolster its strength and uh, help people with their adaptability. And, um, and one in five has really been focused on this issue of really building that resilience and, um, and also decreasing any barriers for people getting care. It's been a real, real great thing. So we were also wondering what drove you to select psychiatry out of all the other kind of like specialties in the field? I think actually when I was in um, uh, undergrad, actually my interest was in animal behavior, eth uh, ethology. And so I think the longest paper I had done until medical school was on um, uh, the basically an ethogram, which is a behavioral observation study of the red-winged blackbird. So, um, I know a lot about red-winged blackbirds. Um, not as many as there used to be, but what a beautiful animal. Uh, but anyway, uh, so when then I went to medical school, actually I was thinking about being a um, ophthalmologist, um, an eye surgeon. Um, I think is what happens is you have an experience where there's something that kind of really kind of clicks for you. And right at the same time, I did a rotation on an inpatient um, unit uh, for psychiatry at uh, UC. And, um, and then it just, it felt kind of natural. I was intrigued by the patients I saw. Um, I was uh, fascinated by kind of the treatments and saw some remarkable recoveries. To kind of be part of that was very, very rewarding. And that's really kind of even today. That's what makes this job, I think, really uh, um, a great one is that you um, really engage with people probably at the toughest times of their lives. And over a period of time, hopefully you play a role or helping them guide their recovery. And uh, to see people really get back and have success and uh, be happy um, is a tremendous reward. And um, that long-term long contact, I think, was more my style than uh, even though I still liked ophthalmology, um, it was, uh, wasn't quite the, uh, how should I say, every day is different in psychiatry. Every day is a new challenge. Mm -hmm. Seeing, seeing that people recover and uh, do that work is really positive. The other part of it is it's very inspiring. You see people at their worst, but also people at their best. Mm -hmm. And some of the families I've met, the, the, you, know, you know, the love of a father or mother towards their kid and what they're willing to do. Uh, to see that in its uh, really um, most intense form uh, mm -hmm. really is, uh, it's invigorating. It's, it's, it's inspiring. Thank you. We're so happy that you, um, that you love it and that you are here in Cincinnati and that um, Cincinnati gets to benefit from, from your love of that, of that area. It's awesome. Thank you. So what continues to motivate you when burnout is such a real thing? And especially in this area, the, the need for the service is so high. And I know you have to work a lot of hours and it's very stressful. Well, I, I, it goes back to, um, you know, you work with people and, um, and you see that the, oh, uh, oftentimes this uh, crucible of difficulty where it's, uh, they're desperate for their child, the most important thing in their life. Mm -hmm. um, and they ask you, can you help? Uh, and a lot of times they've asked a lot of people and uh, haven't got to the, the response or 
the services haven't been available, it is really hard to say no. Uh, darn near impossible. Um, and so that's one reason is you see the need and, um, and then you also, you see the good that happens. Um, you, you have to take care of yourself. Um, and this is something, especially for our young providers, whether it's physicians or social workers or psychologists, whatever it might be is you have to take care of yourself because there is a lot of, uh, trauma you're exposed to. Uh, even though you may not be experiencing it directly yourself when you're involved in those um, um, you know, those cases or those uh, families where there is a lot of difficulties, um, uh, you have to kind of take care of yourself to make sure it's not too much. And that's why you have to rely on whether it's other people in the profession or your family, whatever it might be. Um, but the, um, the good you see far outweighs the negatives. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, I mean, you hear about burnout, and actually, uh, I've done a little bit of uh, preparation on burnout before, and actually, psychiatry is better than most. Really? Yeah, and I think it's because of the variety, and and probably a little bit more of a um, permission to talk about it. I mean, you're telling other people to talk about their issues, and, mm-hmm. and so I think probably to bring it to the forefront and be pretty open about it, mm-hmm. uh, maybe is a little bit easier. Uh-huh. So tell it you talked a little bit about self-care. Can you um speak to that a little bit more? Because we're this is a, the other part of this um episode is also going to be about wellness. So tell us a little bit about how you take care of yourself. What does that look like as a doctor? To me, the biggest part is being okay with the mission you're on. And that is as you dedicate a lot of time and effort and um this energy, uh, whether it's you know the long hours or doing studies or reading a journal, whatever it might be, um, leading a treatment team. Um, there's, I think when I, when I see things about burnout, it's a lot of times it's about where you feel like your work's not aligned with kind of the mission. And I think to me is that's a focus. You have to kind of be realistic with yourself and think that through a lot of this, um, work that maybe is a little bit tedious at times does kind of really help with the mission you're on. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you're not kind of always reviewing that type of work. So I think part of it is kind of getting, getting your head around to, okay, these efforts really are important. And, and for most people, they really are. Um, sometimes I think we can, sometimes can cheapen the efforts of what we're doing. Uh, the other part I think is to really have some things away from it. Um, whether that's the outdoors or sports or you know, novels, singing, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And some of the people I've seen that seem to do really well with this have well-developed um, alternatives. They really are kind of totally out of this realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a big help. And then I think for, you know, having that peer group is so important so that, you know, there's a, a support and a, um, you know, kind of a working through the difficult times where you're discussing what, what's a challenge, um, you're discussing how to overcome it. And I think also kind of there's an inspiration piece of that too, where you see maybe some of your more experienced peers or things like that and uh, the success they've had, not so much from, you know, uh, kind of rank or anything like that, but what they've been able to contribute to other people. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. We were also wondering, what have you learned about adolescent mental health that you think the general public should be aware of? 
Well, uh, I would say the first thing is that kids are, adolescents are good. I think sometimes we focus so much on the adolescent problem. I, most adolescents I know are really good people. Um, <clears throat> I see young people who are probably a lot smarter than I was when I was an adolescent, um, much more knowledgeable, um, really engaged with, it's amazing some of the people I see and how they're engaged in so many productive, positive things. And then um, it's when you work with some of the young people, just seeing that uh, drive, that um, um, wanting to make a positive difference. Uh, so I think there's a lot of good out there. Um, having said that, I think is probably, we have some pressures on kids now that are different than before. And I think as our world's gotten more complex and a lot more information and um, I think there's stressors on them that, again, in my generation, we didn't have. And I don't think we fully understand that and what it means. And so a lot of times we kind of blame social media and things like that. I think it's a bigger issue than that. I think it's so much information coming in and uh, so many opportunities, but also so many pressures. And so um, I think you, you end up seeing kind of both ends of the spectrums having difficulties. What I mean by that is people that are having... Um, problems with, uh, you know, being in a competitive school or expectations about achievement and the anxiety there. And that seems to be at a height, heightened rate than a, I've ever seen it before. And uh, almost a perfectionism that some of the young people are kind of striving for that really probably isn't the healthiest. And on the other end of the spectrum, of course, is the young people that need, uh, don't have the enrichment in their lives that they should. Uh, whether it's because of trauma or neglect or uh, really an absence of uh, stimulation, um, uh, whether it's been whether it's poverty or some type of negative relationships, and so you, those things are out there and regretfully are still growing. And uh, so those are the issues we, along with many others, but those are I think big issues that we really need to focus on. They've always been a problem to a degree, but I think especially some of those issues about pressure are more now than they used to be. So why do you think that is that they've, uh, that these issues have kind of grown over the past few years and especially just over the course of your career? It seems, it seems to me like the way to make it before when I was younger and it was disappearing then, this is getting maybe too reminiscent, you could be successful if you just were a hard worker. I'm not sure that's so true anymore. I mean, I think you still have to be a hard worker, but you have to be skilled. And, and I think people kind of realize that because the way, you know, way people are differentiating themselves is because they do have these great skill sets and they're really soaring. And I think there's this push at times to, for achievement that sometimes can be um, not a bad thing, but a thing that sometimes can cause difficulties for folks and um, create too much pressure. That to me is maybe what's different is there's so much um, more information coming into people's hands and, you know, and the ability to kind of compare yourself to someone else or someone across the country and just the stress about, you know, where do I match up? Mm -hmm. uh, for some people, I think is a big, uh, is different than perhaps it was. And those things were always there, but it was a smaller group. Absolutely. Uh, so along those lines, um, 
now that we've talked kind of about the history of it, where do you see these issues kind of going in the future? Like what's the trajectory? Well, again, as I, I, I might, or I, I think it's overall, it's a hopeful thing. Um, there's more stress, but also there's now the ability, if we turn it to the positive, <clears throat> to reach out to people in ways we never have before. I mean, just uh, the idea of just doing a podcast, um, you know, 15 years ago or something, it really wasn't commonplace. Um, so I think is the uh, ability to reach out to people, to um, engage them in positive things, um, probably is easier to do now than ever before, or to, um, you know, take positive information and, and to spread it among people. Um, we probably not, you know, in some ways is we, we, we probably have not taken advantage as much as we should have of whether it's technology or really new modern ways of communicating and, and um, in regards to kind of how do we do treatment or, or how we really engage people around kind of more positive aspects of development. So what do you think this current situation, just looking at that, I've, I've thought a lot about in the last couple of weeks, what, what kind of impact this is gonna have. I think that we are gonna communicate more like this in the future. Um, but I think it's also going to have everybody step back a little bit and say, what is, what's, what should be the priority? Um, what, what do you think is going to happen? Um, on your well, hat. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not, I, well, it's hard for me to say. Um, I guess to me is the, um, um, there'll be a lot of major changes to your point. Will this be more kind of the way we kind of interrelate more and more will it be electronically. Um, I think that may be some positives because, you know, we were just talking the other day about our partial hospital program and how it had to close it because of, um, you know, just uh, it could have probably classified essential, but having kids together uh, was not the good thing. Um, so we closed it. So now we're going to come up with a virtual, not equivalent, but kind of a more brief version. But then we thought, well, if we do this well, okay, we won't have, you know, we can offer this. Uh, we can still bring back the old one. But on the other hand, now we'll have another way to do this. And it's not geographically limited. Because mm -hmm. that was one of the big, it was access to people driving their kid there. Right. And so now it'll be, well, you don't have to drive anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you can, as long as you have some supervision at home, or could you actually integrate it into schools where mm -hmm. you'd have a therapeutic treatment program that you could do for schools, but it's done electronically. Right. I mean, you could all of a sudden you can have therapists in every classroom mm -hmm. when they need it. Um, you know, so there's a whole different, you're kind of, because we've decided to take some of those barriers down around billing and things like that, it's really, you know, perhaps open a new door. We'll have to see. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think at least from a therapy stance, I think there might be some real positives to it. Um, how um, people begin getting back to things. Um, I don't know. A lot of times kids, when you see um, kids who have been traumatized and all that, uh, they still want to engage in kind of play and they relate with people. And so we still see it. Uh, on the playground at the hospital that despite all the kids come in, they still want to go down the slides and climb the poles and do whatever it is. And you see them kind of being the same, except somebody's coaching them say, stay six feet apart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they're doing the same stuff. And um, so I think is there will be a, a bounce back. Um, it'll, it'll be, hopefully we'll take the positives away from it. Okay. 
All right, now let's move to, um, as a parent, um, we, as an adolescent, a lot of times we hear, you know, I don't understand what normal is and when I have to start being concerned about my child. So sort of talk to the issues of where is the line and with what should what kind of things should parents be looking at in their adolescence when to start to be concerned? Uh, well, I think is I would view that as a when does a certain thought or behavior or emotion or condition really start interfering with, you know, a, a young person's normal development? Um, when does it start interfering with their schoolwork or their academic progress? When does it start interfering with their relationships in the home and the family? Uh, or when does it start interfering with really their social development with friends or activities or, or interest? Um, so we all can, for instance, if we would take uh, some problems with depression, all of us can kind of go through ups and down periods of time. Um, but if all of a sudden the depression starts making someone for a few weeks not talk to friends, isolate themselves in their room, problems with concentration at school and their grades are dropping, now we have a problem. For someone to have be upset because there was a conflict with a peer at school or something for a few days or maybe uh, be upset with themselves because they struggled with an exam, that doesn't, those would be normal aspects of development. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really when you see whether, again, a mood or a thought pattern or a belief system or a behavior that begins interfering with kind of really what we expect kind of kids to be able to do, uh, that's when we have a, a problem. Um, and so for younger children is what we want to do is we want to make sure that we take care of their ability to kind of participate in the classroom and pay attention and not be disruptive. That's kind of really that idea of kind of getting along to learn is important for younger kids. And then you get, as you get it more into adolescence, it's really, really, you know, someone's developing as an individual and there's a lot of choices involved and um, they're beginning to assert some independence. So oftentimes there is really helping them kind of make choices that really generate a positive result for themselves rather than one that causes, you know, difficulties or pain or takes away opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, so you want them to make choices about, you know, opening doors rather than closing things for themselves, either through disruptive behavior or, or problems at school or whatever it might be. Okay. So is there any other any other messages that you would want parents to be aware of to be, um, be to be looking for in their youth? Uh, well, I, my sense would be the one of the, you know, take the time to engage. Uh, that's really easier said than done. So many polls on families, but that idea of just being with people, mm -hmm. um, taking that time to kind of listen. Don't problem solve right away. Hear what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, they, people don't want you always to step in and solve their problem. They want to be heard. Uh, and I think that's really true for parents because we want to kind of solve it right away. Um, as opposed to kind of listening and getting a feel for what the person's really maybe battling with. But my sense is that time to just engage, work through, uh, help, hopefully open a conversation so that they feel comfortable in discussing what they're struggling with or what they're contemplating or where they're headed um, is very important. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, 
they at times may want to put you off, but on the other hand is they want to know that you're interested in them. Um, they, you know, so often when we work with families is we want the kids to believe that when, they, when their, their parents believe there's something very special about them, because there is, mm-hmm. but sometimes we don't do a good job of communicating that. Mm-hmm. And so I think accentuate the positives, help your child realize they really are something, you know, something unique. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes you feel much better as a parent because you are the most, parents are the most important person in a child's life. That's who they get their morals from. That's who they get their ideas from. That's how they'll make future decisions by their observations of you as they're growing up. So I have one other question. I know you've talked a lot. Um, I've heard you talk a lot in, in the past about the importance of the parent. You talked, you touched a little bit on it just a couple minutes ago, but um, how important that role is for a child's um, mental health and what role that parent plays. Uh, well, it's, it is the most critical role. I think the, um, there's not anyone who's more important in a person's life than their parents or their, you know, their, their caregiver. Um, and um, the idea of kind of often is how they, you know, that's the person who enriches their world uh, through, you know, conversation, through reading books, through positive reinforcement, through sharing experiences, as we've talked about. Um, and it's the person then they look to, to kind of really pattern their lives after. And, um, and really when you think about kind of, even now as an adult, I, you know, I have to make a decision. I can think back about what would my folks do? <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's in your brain. Yeah. You are. Uh, So I think is that that idea of kind of internalizing what we see from those positive people in our lives. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a big responsibility, but a real rewarding one. And um, and I think that positive connection when you have with a child, really, it's, you know, you see, you know, um, how should I say, it's almost like uh, things kind of multiply where something good happens and then you see them take it forward and more good things happen. Um, so that positive encouragement, reinforcement, um, really gives young people a sense of, I think, positive, contributes to a sense of positive well-being and, uh, in the future kind of, uh, success. So as you mentioned before, you have some patients that come from a little bit more challenging family situations. So what would you tell those patients that don't really have that adult figure that they can turn to? Well, that's, that's a tough situation where, and you're right, that happens far too often, um, where we've seen this, I think, um, really prominently in the last, um, over the last five, eight years is with the uh, opioid epidemic. Um, young people oftentimes losing their parents early on, or more commonly that they're tied up in serious substance use problems. Um, and uh, sometimes you see you really kind of kids with who are um, have a lot of positive qualities because they were raised pretty well when they were younger and then parents got engaged with substances and they're kind of gone now uh, or really struggling and there is a despair there uh, that uh, is prominent and so kind of in my work is oftentimes one is you know can be helping families so that that parent is in recovery and beginning to uh, kind of uh, recover, recover the relationship with the child. Um, 
There's also times where maybe a young person's in kinship care or is even maybe in foster care or something of that nature. And, and then you try to look towards those providers to try to fill in some of those gaps. And uh, that idea of kind of getting some uh, really a involved adult who is uh, really advocating for that kid and making a connection. Because there's a lot of resilience. It doesn't mean that, that young people can't recover from that. There'll be oftentimes, you know, some scars, but it doesn't mean that it has to be all negative. And that people can kind of find, or young people can find new adults to kind of really kind of work and help, um, how should I say, um, take on some of the same roles that that parent would. So sometimes it's teachers, it could be coaches, it can be principals at school. And I think as, as all of us kind of grow up, we kind of take things from important people we met along the way and who maybe aren't our parents. And, um, and so we try to accentuate those for young people that maybe don't have that positive presence at home. It's different. It's a challenge. Uh, but it doesn't mean that someone can't have a good outcome. So is there anything that we missed that you think people need to know about when we're talking about um, youth mental health? Sure. Are there a lot of kids that need help? Yes, there are. But it doesn't mean like the generation's going down. I think that's, that would be the worst message. Actually, it's a lot of hope. Number two is really that importance of uh, not stressing um, or just kind of positive engagement mm -hmm. and, um, you know, being able to kind of spend time together and focus on the good things that, you know, we share. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. We greatly appreciate it, especially during this very busy time. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, uh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully you can uh, relax today. Well, I appreciate that. I think I will. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So we are also excited to welcome Dr. Solomon, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, leadership coach, and founder of Gallia Collaborative. Gallia Collaborative empowers purpose-driven women to elevate their impact by developing their mental strength and well-being. You can find more information on their website at galliacollaborative.com. Dr. Solomon, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So our first question that we typically ask is, how did you decide to pursue a career in psychology? And why have you decided to focus on women's mental health in particular? So when I was growing up, um, actually, my great grandmother lived with us um, as she was at the final stages of her life. And so there was a period of a few years where um, she was living in in our house with the rest of my family and I became very close to her. And so at the very end of her life, um, I was you know, five or six years old, but really struggling with um, her impending death. And, um, and then she did die and, and sort of the, the grief that came after that. And so my mom actually took me to a therapist when I was five or six years old. And I consider myself now so fortunate to have had that early experience in seeking mental health support and um, and getting therapy. In part, I think because my my mom and my parents really learned a lot about me um, and learned about some of the things that were going to be helpful 
for me and you know the rest of my kind of development in particular I think that I was a really sensitive and feeling person and that things that happened in the world I would, I would very much internalize and so so mental health was really a, a part of the conversation in my home um, for really as long as I could remember and things like grief and stress and um, taking care of our brains was was really kind of at the forefront which I recognized later was not necessarily the norm um, and not kind of as typical especially at that time but um, it was it was something really on my radar and so psychology ended up being something that I really wanted to pursue for again kind of as long as I could remember um, I was a really nerdy kid as well as a feeling kid and so I was also just really and I say that in the most loving way to myself. Um, but I was just really curious about things, but particularly people. And so psychology was just this beautiful blend of the feeling world and kind of understanding why we have experiences that we do, but also uh, on this very sort of scientific level, understanding why um, not just individuals, but we as humans think the way that we do. So um, I decided early on to pursue a career in psychology and um, during graduate school was was particularly focused in the area of eating disorders. That was something that had affected myself and my family. Um, and while eating disorders really um, impact on men, women, people of all genders, um, you know, they they quite disproportionately impact women. And so as, as a function of really diving deep into the world of, of eating disorder work, I ended up working with lots and lots of women from lots of backgrounds and situations. And, um, and that kind of combined with the fact that I also kind of grew up in a very feminist household um, really led me to want to understand the unique issues that, again, kind of disproportionately impact on women, especially at various points in our lives. Um, you know, in early adolescence, in um, stages of becoming and being engaged in motherhood, you know, throughout kind of the life stages. So, so that's really what my work has been about. All right. In this episode, we're mainly starting out by trying to break down some of the stigma that surrounds the, the phrase mental health. Um, as we know, the stigma can be really a big barrier for someone to seek treatment um, and to get help. So with that in mind, how would you define mental health? Mm -hmm. It's a really great question because I think when we think about health as just a general broad concept, we don't inherently think of problems or something, um, something that represents kind of an illness or disease. And yet when we talk about mental health, I, I do think that there's this idea that it reflects um, that it only applies for people that are struggling with things like depression or anxiety or, you know, other kind of mental or clinical disorders. But, you know, we all have mental health. Um, we all have, just, just as we all have our physical health to attend to. So you know, when I think of mental health, I think of our emotional wellness, our, um, our cognitive functioning, just how well we can sort of concentrate and focus and pay attention to the things especially that are most important to us, um, how aligned we are with our value system, 
um, how connected we are. I think it is really encompassing of relationships and our, um, our interpersonal functioning. So it's a broad concept, um, but I, I think it reflects all of the things that, that often get left out of the physical health conversation um, and that have to do especially with our identity as human beings. So what do you say to someone who, um, say you have a patient who comes in and their parents don't, um, don't buy the concept that everybody has mental health and they're just like, why can't they just get over this? I think um, we, well, as, as all of us well know, I think we often come up against a lot of the stigma that still is, is very much at play when we talk about mental health. And I think that it's really helpful, especially in my work, when I work with um, teens and families to, to start really by em empathizing with the fact that not everyone, you know, I have the story, like I said, of having mental health be really part of the conversation um, in growing up, but empathizing with the fact that that hasn't been part of the conversation for many, many people, um, or if it has, it's been very much sort of pushed off to the side as something that we talk about very privately or in secret or implies that something's really wrong. Um, and so certainly when I can talk with parents about some of that, um, I, I find it helpful to kind of highlight um, some of the aspects of their own health and wellness that maybe they haven't considered as part of mental health before, um, but that are part of their, um, you know, mental and emotional functioning. Um, I think for the, for the patient that comes in and is really struggling because the people around them or their, um, yeah, the people in their lives just are not really getting what that means. Um, I think that, that, it can be helpful to, in every kind of family system, sometimes it can be hard for us to educate each other um, just because there's so many dynamics at play. And so I do think that one of the things is really helpful that as it becomes part of the conversation more broadly in our community to point people to different, to different resources and to uh, different people talking about these issues. Um, so that, you know, sometimes it just takes someone saying something in a particular way for something to resonate with someone um, in a, you know, in a different way than they're, they're used to hearing. So it's certainly, it's certainly a challenge. I think that um, I also remind people who may be younger and, um, you know, still feel pretty reliant on, you know, their family system to support something like therapy, that there are resources still available, even if your family cannot really get on board with the fact that you might need um, help in a particular way. And there, there are communities, both online and in person. Um, there are resources that you can read, podcasts, ways that you can educate yourself, um, and that you can still talk with peers and other potentially supportive adults in your life about what's going on. Thank you. That's great. So part of Gallia Collaborative's mission is to develop mental strength and well-being. And while we know that you focus um, on women, this part of our mission is so important um, for everybody. So could you explain a little bit how you help individuals develop and strengthen their minds and in uh, their well-being? Yeah, absolutely. So, so like we've been talking about, I think that the, the first part of that is really kind of expanding what our definition of 
mental strength and well-being is. Um, one of the things that I like to talk about is that, you know, and I, I know I've even done it here today in, in talking about this, but that we tend to differentiate between our physical health and our mental health, you know, as if they are these two completely separate entities, um, where of course we know that that's not the case and that there's this you see, not just mind-body connection, but you know, as we learn more about, we learn more about the brain and about things like serotonin and neurotransmitters that they're not just in our head; they're throughout our entire bodies, and they impact on how our GI system works. And so, there's all of these um, very real interplays between our our body and our brain as we've defined them. And so, so. For example, one of the things that we talk about is that the way that we talk to and relate to our bodies impacts how we, we feel and function and our mental wellness. So I, I say that just as an example of the way that we can sort of broaden what it means to strengthen our, our mental wellness, that we can access, um, access how we feel and how we think through lots of modalities. So um, for some people, that something like talk therapy is really helpful and they, are, they might be very oriented towards talking things out and processing things. And for other people, that's not the way that their, their mind works. And so it's going to be, we talked a little bit about play therapy or, um, or really engaging their bodies in certain ways through movement. So everyone has... I think the first step of thinking about um, strengthening ourselves mentally is thinking about how, who are we as individuals and what, what resonates with us, what helps us to feel strong in control of ourselves, um, able to, to sort of confront difficult challenges, and then to really cultivate whatever that is, to, to really strengthen whatever that is. Sometimes there are, you know, particular kind of deficits or things that we might want to work on because we know that that's getting in the way of living as well as we could. Um, and so we also do, we certainly do that work. Um, and then the other thing that I would say that's part of mental strength and wellness is, is looking at our environment and our support systems and what is going to um, really like foster and enable us to, again, kind of live our best selves, which, you know, we can sort of individually be as, as mentally strong as we want to be. But if we're surrounded by negativity or um, people that are really sort of detracting us from what's most important to us or our values or how we feel sort of strongest, then that's only going to last for so long. So, and I mean that both in, in the sense of who our kind of immediate peer group is, but also just in our communities and certainly, you know, it's, it's as relevant today as ever, but thinking about sort of what's going on in the world more broadly and how that's impacting on us too. Okay, so a lot of people, um, uh, women in particular, uh, hear the word self-care and they link, uh, they think of mani-pedis and bath bombs and face masks and massage, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, can you shed some light on what, what it really means when we talk about self-care? Yeah. Yeah. I, I always say that there's nothing wrong with those things and those can be part of a great self-care regimen, but it's, it's not really the essence of what self-care is. And I've actually started to, 
to use the term self-trust rather than self-care recently. And, and what I mean by that is that I think what, what we're trying to get at when we talk about self-care is about the things that actually make up what it means to trust ourselves. So being consistent with ourselves, being reliable in showing up in the ways that we need to for ourselves, um, respecting our own boundaries. So I think the majority of the time self-care looks quite unglamorous and it's things like (laughs) going to bed at a reasonable time and turning off our cell phone, even when we like really just want to like keep scrolling and making sure that we're not spending more money than we have so that we don't have that additional stress Mm-hmm. and things like that. So so it's often the less, you know, glamorous desirable kind of practices that really comprise what it means to be able to trust ourselves, um trust ourselves to kind of keep our own boundaries and sort of stay within our our own value systems, but I think that when we we do that consistently over time, that's that's really what it means to have a self-care practice. So when you're looking at today with the with the um, COVID pandemic going on, um, what are some things that you're you're talking to your clients about about how to take care of themselves during this time? It looks different now because we're yeah. in different situations and we're feeling things that we've never felt before. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, I think that some of the major themes that I'm hearing from people that I work with are you know fall fall especially into the categories of grief, anxiety, and then um, just the response to a collective trauma. Um, so I've been talking to a lot of people to just help even conceptualize what we're experiencing as a collective trauma um, and understand that the, the ways that our body and our minds are responding are a function of that. So uh, I think a lot of things I'm hearing from people are, I just don't understand why I'm having trouble sleeping or I feel more on edge or I feel irritable or agitated, or um, I'm just not motivated to do things, even though, you know, maybe my community is opening a little bit more and I could go out. I just don't feel like it. Um, I don't feel like myself. I, I think the first part of that is, is recognizing why we likely feel that way because I noticed that a lot of people are um, are not only then feeling that way but then putting a lot of feelings of guilt or shame on themselves for feeling that way like what's wrong with me like I maybe I haven't lost my job or I haven't you know I'm not necessarily on the front lines of what's going on so what um, you know what right do I have to be struggling in this way so I think we have to give ourselves a a lot of self-compassion that we're going through, as we keep hearing, an unprecedented experience that none of us know exactly how to navigate. Um, I think some of the things that are are helping and helpful for people are getting outside as much as we can. Um, There's actually been some interesting research coming out already about some of the, in some of the places where the the regulations were most stringent in terms of people even not leaving their houses. Um, I know for most of us, we've 
you know, been able to access like taking walks and things like that. But in places where that wasn't the case, they're having the worst mental health outcomes. So we know that being, you know, outside, getting fresh air, interacting in the ways that we can and that are safe um, is really crucial for our mental health. Um, I think lowering our expectations of ourselves during this time, I think getting a lot of rest. I've been, I've been trying to remind myself of that, that just all of the decisions that we're having to make take a huge mental toll. And we kind of underestimate what that means for then our body's needs for rest and recuperation, but it's, it's more than normal. And so it makes sense if you feel like, oh, I got a good night's sleep and yet I'm still tired. Um, so it's a lot of things that, a lot of things about taking care of our bodies and minds and in the way that we might normally need to, but with sort of an extra dose of that, I think right now. So um, as you know, the mental health system can be really challenging to navigate for a person just starting out on a wellness journey. Um, you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but if someone comes to you and tells you that they're confused or don't really know what to do or where to go for help, what would you tell them? Yeah, it is a, can be a brutal system. Um, I think that's really important to acknowledge. So I think that we know that there are resources available and yet they can be very difficult to find. If someone's seeking even something that might feel as simple as I just need to call a therapist, I'm ready to call, I'm ready to make that, you know, take that step. Um, I know people who described as feeling so overwhelmed by that, that process and not even knowing, you know, where to start or where to go. So there are definitely in, in that process, there are, um, actually, I'm going to say first that I think it's important to know what you're looking for. Um, and, and it's okay if you don't have, uh, that exactly spelled out, but the more that you can, understand and recognize what it is that you're looking for, even um, between different types of providers, for example, it can be, that can be a helpful first step. Um, knowing, you know, do I think I want to pursue um, trying medication to support myself? And maybe I'm going to talk initially then to my primary care doctor or pediatrician um, and potentially see work with a psychiatrist versus I know that I really want to process through some things that have happened or have a chance to talk about it. And I might want to connect with, um, you know, an individual therapist. So that can be helpful to know the difference. Um, it can be helpful to know what, um, kind of resources you have. If certainly if you're going to be using, um, insurance or other resources, if there's a particular, sort of specialization or area that you want to make sure that the providers that you see um, have that that's helpful to know so that you can kind of narrow down that search. And then there are things like provider directories out there that can be a good place to start with kind of entering the information that is going to be important to you. Um, and, and then it can sort of distill down who might be good resources for you. Um, but I, I do often think that if you feel super overwhelmed and have no place, you know, have no idea where to start talking to, if you have a general practitioner or um, a PCP that you can talk to, they can often sort of at least point you in the right direction, maybe people that they work with closely. 
Um, I'd also just love to offer to be a resource for people um, if they, if you're struggling to connect with someone um, in your own community. I am happy to try to work with you to figure out what a good, um, what resources might be in the area that you're in. All right, and uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you want our listeners to know about Gallia Collaborative? Just that, so, so in, I'll say that in addition to um, the, the therapy that we provide as a group of, so we're a group of psychologists, social workers, um, licensed counselors, in addition to the individual therapy that we provide, the other thing that I'm really excited about that we offer are um, what we call circles, which are you know small groups of people that come together around a particular challenge or issue. Some of those are more kind of clinical in nature. Some are more life stage in nature, or kind of goal oriented in nature. But I just think that there's there's nothing more important in our Kind of development of mental health is community and connectivity and so that's kind of an extension of of that belief is is not only helping people to to do this work individually but to bring them together because i think there's a ton of of power in that so that's something that we do as well and people can find out more information about which ones we're offering when on our website great well, thank you for being with us today we really enjoy learning more about what you do and um, educating people about how to really take care of their um, mental health and wellness. So thank you. Thank you so much. I love all that you you all do in that space as well. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we're changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time when we explore the Children's Hospital's Adapting for Life program and how it's impacting local students. We'll talk with Stacey Hoffman, Licensed Counselor and Program Manager for Adapting for Life, and Terry Thomas, PE and Health Teacher, who implements the program in her classes. See you then. 